Hey everybody, Melissa McKenzie here with Scott McKay. We are uh, recording on a, the typical Tuesday and we are talking about crazy stuff. This is the spectacle podcast of the American Spectator. Scott is finished with his book. Thank and God. can well, he's finished with I'm the not first I mean, I'm not finished. I'm done with the first draft. So you're now you know, you're in rewrites draft. and it gets like less hectic, right? And I can just kind of, you know, for over the next few weeks, we can just kind of pick away at it and get it better. And then, and then it'll be time to release it. So that's, it's finally, once you, you know, you're, if you ever wrote a book, I mean, you've got to get to the end of that first draft. Like you don't have a book until you have that first draft done. So it's yeah. been three months of nonstop, just, I mean, every waking moment, it's like, oh, I got to work on the book. And so, you know, last Wednesday night, I finally like, oh, wait, I'm done and sent it into the editor. And I'm like, hey, don't even bother me about this for like a week. Yeah. Right. So, so um, we're in that grace period right now. Yeah. This is low. This is low stress, Scott. This is this is like the best you're ever going to get. Well, we'll see how good that is by the end of this yeah, podcast. Yeah, that's right. that's we'll see Melissa's what the best job to like knock me back down. <laughs> we'll just see. Okay, so we were talking about this before we started recording, which is that Tucker is getting heat, not from the left, but from the right, big shock, for releasing um, edits of and pieces and parts of the video, the thousands of hours of video that the Republicans haven't released to the defendants or really to anybody to look at right and two things came out of this video that were very obvious one was like you know the shaman dude shaman dude yeah jacob was... chansley is this guy's name yeah that let's call guy. him by his name i mean you know like they, he got branded as whatever that stupid thing is because he was wearing that costume but the guy is a navy veteran Right. His name is. Jacob uh, oh, Chansley. I didn't know that. Yeah. He's a Navy veteran. And I think oh. we should give him the respect to just calling him by his name. His name is Jacob Chansley, and he shouldn't be spending any more time in a federal prison because yeah. he didn't do anything. He wasn't he violent. He didn't hurt anybody. He was escorted around by Capitol Police officers who, like, tried to open doors for him. Oh, wait. Oh, you can go in here. Oh, wait, this door's locked. But let's go over in here. He had nine of them at any given time that's on this video. His entire experience from the time he walked in the door to the time he left out of there was on surveillance video. They've gone through the entire thing. He never hurt anybody. He never swung a, threw a punch. He never, he never did anything um, contrary to what the Capitol Police officers who were around him the whole time we're doing he here's, just happened to be in a costume and so they had to make an example of it here's my question about that with him coming in and everything was he allowed to have this video footage shown at his trial yeah that's the question right because that's exculpatory evidence right and it wasn't made available to the defense nor was yeah. it made available to the judge um and then you know the, the judge royce lamberth I, honestly, this guy ought to be impeached as a yeah. judge because to run a, that's a kangaroo court when the judge is like, wait a minute, the entire Capitol is, you know, on surveillance footage. I want to see all of the surveillance footage, like, and order the prosecutor to make it available. Right. Yeah. And didn't do that. 
Now, right. I don't know what the, obviously the defense had to have made a, a motion for discovery of all that video. And for the judge not to have, have um, granted that motion and get that video into evidence, I, that I, that's not a trial. I don't know what that is. That's a that's a that's a Soviet kangaroo court. You know, that's a show trial. It's that's not a real thing. And then they gave this guy forty one months. He didn't swing a punch. Right. Forty one months for trespassing. This is I mean, this is absolutely. It is an outrage that this guy is is in prison like one more day. And if Joe Biden was a man of honor, which he is not. Um, Joe Biden would commute this guy's sentence and send him home this afternoon. But the thing is, is that his, so like, I, I still have questions. Is it even trespassing if you are escorted in? Like, so, so for your example, are you breaking the law if you are being escorted to the hospital with a police, with the police, they know your wife is in labor, right? And they escort you to the hospital. And yes, you're speeding and going over the speed limit. But are you breaking the law if the police are taking you and escorting you? Likewise, is it really trespassing if the police are taking you in, showing you around, opening doors for you? How, as a citizen, if a, if a police officer did that for me, I would assume that I wasn't doing anything illegal. Because me, you know, kind of Joe, average citizen would go, well, the police said to come on in and I came in and I just followed them. I didn't touch anything. And then I left. But so like, I don't understand. I just can't wrap my head around it. And the thing is, it's like from the beginning, we have been told like the, the, uh, government made the argument that this footage can't be released because they had more people that they were trying to round up. They just arrested like six more people yesterday right. for all of this. And who did, who did what is the question? What did they do? Right. Because let's, let's understand there is a little piece of the first amendment of the U S constitution that says, um, or that recognizes the right of the people to petition their government for redress of grievances, meaning to protest at the Capitol. Right. You have the right to do that. And oh, by the way, it's once every two weeks, if not more, that some left-wing group stages sit-ins in the hallways in Congress mm -hmm. and, you know, for, for, the, the, for the climate or for, you know, um, Native American rights, or I mean, they—they—they're always there. They're always making a pain in the ass of themselves um, and harassing members of Congress in the hallways of the office buildings, much less the Capitol. Okay, they do this all the time, and if they get arrested, it's like they get a ticket and they get sent on their way. Right. This, I mean, this is like everything that these people did. There were more of them. But what they did, other than the few people that broke windows and that kind right. of stuff. And yeah, nobody's complaining about those guys getting prosecuted. Right. All right. Right. But just the people that were walking around in the Capitol, a lot of whom have been arrested and right. jailed. OK, have done nothing compared to what the people that the professional protesters that are at the Capitol all the time do for specific political purposes. Right. And literally disrupt 
members of Congress in their daily work. And these oh, guys, yeah. I mean, you know, I, look, and I've said from the very beginning that I thought January 6th was a mis a big mistake, that it was a trap right. that the right. MAGA crowd fell into, all right? right? Largely because of what we now, I mean, it's pretty as the Ray Epses of the world were, were leading these people into this. Yeah. And this was, I mean, you basically established a situation where, you know, you all go in there and you do this big old thing and- Really, what you do is you shut down the presentation of Republican members of Congress and senators who are now going to talk about the irregularities of the 2020 election. That stuff all got kind of blown out the door when these people breached the building, which makes you wonder, you know, what the, the agents provocateur that the feds freaking cooked up and sent in there mm -hmm. that, that, that wasn't done on purpose. And I think obviously I think it it was. But the point is, most of these people meant very well. They wanted to go into the building and they wanted to have their voices heard, which they have a First Amendment protected constitutional right to do. And, and for that, we've put these people in jail without bail or trial in many cases. Without exculpatory yeah without exculpatory evidence. Right. And now we have now you have all this footage that I mean every like every second of that footage has got to be seen in the case of every one of these people because yes. it will prove what they did or what they didn't do. And right. anybody who's in that, you know, Chateau d'If federal prison in DC, yeah. okay, I guarantee you that whatever is on that footage, other than the people that broke the windows and you know fought the cops or whatever, which wasn't a lot of folks, all right, everybody else, and we're talking there's, what, a couple hundred people now. Um, uh, yeah, I think they've uh, arrested uh, over a thousand now. Okay, how and the I, thing I is, is I think they, still... I think they've arrested that many people because they wanted to say that over a thousand people have been arrested. Yeah, like, so. you know what I mean? Like, this is at the this is such a propaganda thing oh. that now it's got to be used. Like, like for example, one of the lies they've told over and over and over again is that that. Um, Officer Sicknick was killed during the riot riots. Well, Utterly. there he is alive and well on the video yeah. that they have. And it directly disproves what they've been saying. Yeah. The thing that makes me so angry about this, Scott, is that the set the senators, it's now that this uh the this videotape has been released to Tucker, it should be released to all defendants, in my opinion, and all ten thousand hours or whatever should be released to everyone, so yes. we can all pick through it in, at our leisure, and uh, you know, so four chan can go crazy and you know pick up pe people whatever. Um, that this I think is our fundamental right as Americans to see this video because it's been lied about so much. But we have senators, not on the Democrat side, but on the GOP side. We have Romney and Lindsey Graham, all the usual suspects. And Lindsey Graham, who's on. trying to invade Mexico, by the way. Right. That that same Lindsey Graham. And well, and start a you know nuclear war with Russia. Oh, by the way. Right. Um and uh, so, you know, he's saying about this is a terrible thing and I'm not going to defend these. And I'm just like, so now we know why all of this was allowed to happen. And one of the things that I said to Kate beforehand, our producer, who's the lovely Kate, um, is that uh, these folks 
hate these people too. The the GOP senators. Ooh. And I said from the beginning of this January 6th thing, this does not happen without Mitch McConnell's stamp of approval. Yeah. And he's approved it from the beginning. And yeah. so so the poor, the people who get these jerks elected, the people who are willing to go out and knock on doors are the same people who are willing to go to the U.S. Capitol when they're afraid that the vote has been subverted which it was for many was. people in many places. So this is not some made up thing like everybody's talking about. So they go and they make their voices heard. These are the people who believe in uh, ideas enough to get out there and fight to get certain people elected. And those same elected people have no problem screwing their own base. The Democrats never do this. This is why the Antifa people get off. This is why not one Planned Parenthood, uh, plan you know pro uh, abortion type who's burnt up yeah, uh, pregnancy assistance centers, right. all of these things you know attacks on the Catholic Church over and over and over. All this kind of terrorism is the Democrats look the other way, and the GOP. What do they do? They throw their voters to the lions always it's it's been that way for decades decades um and you know and in fact if i can go back to you know the revivalist manifesto i talk about this this is you know third era republican party it kicked in in 1932 when the gop took a spanking by uh you know uh fdr and the entire party just kind of went into remission and even when you've had successful Republican presidents, it's always been, you know, well, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're living in the other guy's world. I mean, even Ronald Reagan had to drink with Tip O'Neill to get anything done. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you've never had a party with a whip hand because you don't have a whip hand mentality. You've got a bunch of people who are more than happy to be, you know, the pet conservatives of, you know, the left wing establishment. Lindsey Graham, Lindsey, all of Lindsey Graham's friends are Democrats, right? And the only thing Lindsey Graham really wants to do is fight wars and build, you know, tanks and, and planes and, 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 you know, things that defense contractors can get rich off of. Well, um, uh, and I'm not, say, and I'm not like going to sit here and do the whole military industrial complex thing. Okay. Those guys actually have done a lot of good for the, for the country and all this kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, you know, it's crooked politicians like Lindsey Graham who are the downfall of the Republican Party, number one, and the downfall of the country, number two, because what happened on January 6th was the American people protesting the fact that an election for president was very poorly run, okay, was was practiced in, in substandard bases across the board, Go back to the Carter-Baker uh, Commission, which released its report in 2005, talking with a bipartisan thing, talking about here are all the things that need to be put in place or need to be sustained to keep an election system that the American people can um, have faith in. And every single one of those major recommendations was violated in the 2020 election. So whether, you, whether you're going to sit here and talk about whether Biden and his people stole the election or not, the election was not practiced 
according to law number one and proper best practice standards number two. And everybody knows this. Everybody understood it. Even the left understood it. They celebrated it. They called it fortifying the election, which was an, like, I mean, if you're going to tell a lie, tell a big one, right? Um, but they bragged about it in Time Magazine. Well, okay. they fortified it. They fortified it for themselves. Yeah, I know. So here's the thing that's insulting on top of this. So you have evidently the left has, you know, focus group this phrase, MAGA Republicans, right? And so Joe Biden has an op-ed in the New York Times talking about how these people want to get rid of Medicare, want to like uh, ruin the prescription drug benefits, blah, 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 down the line, pure lies, election year bull crap right. scare the old but it's people. not an election year that's the that's the amazing thing well the thing is but i think it is because we're starting to see the battle lines drawn much early and so he's already talking about this stuff but the but the thing that bothers me about this is this is just a lie T trump and the Republican Party, as it stands, has no intention of reforming any of this stuff. That's the problem for people like me who care about fiscal security and long-term, you know, longevity of the country. But evidently, the boomers are just wanting to go out with a bang. Me first and more than my fair share. You know, like, they're, they're like, um, oh, what was, is it Airplane? What's the movie where the... You know, and everything's just burning behind them. Um, and, you know, peace out. And then, you know, they oh, leave yeah. this place. Uh, naked gun. Naked uh, gun, right? Yeah, naked gun, right. <laughs> and that's how it feels like. And so here's Biden, who's, you know, blown up because he talked about, he actually, Scott, he talked about how the Republicans would be fiscally irresponsible. <laughs> he well, said he's that. brought the deficit down, Melissa. There was a big deficit and it's less. And Joe Biden takes credit for that. Right. I I, I mean, the, the level of bad faith associated with making claims like that, right? It's like, um, you know, and, and, and look, you could say, yeah, well, Biden's stupid. or whatever. He's always been stupid. Okay. He's never been that stupid and he's not that stupid now. He thinks everybody else is that stupid. Well, right? and he's been proven right. Well, I, yeah, that's the thing. There, there haven't been any negative consequences to Joe Biden making these kinds of claims and statements his entire political career. Okay, I mean, the fact that Joe Biden got busted—you remember that old, old, old yeah. video—and Sam Donaldson had it all in back in the seventies. The media is laughing at him, right? And so, you know, some guy basically freaking. Um, tells me he wants to debate him and buys him. Well, let me tell you about me. And he was, I finished the top of my class and I got scholarship. And every particular of the shit he said in that video, like every last single thing that he said was a lie. Was a lie. All of it was a lie. I mean, he went like eight for eight in lies in 50 seconds. And it was the end of his career. Like it was any the end of his republic would have been like that guy's gone at the next election and he can't run for dog catcher and win. But the, that was the end of his won. presidential uh, hopes that year, though. Remember, he was running for president. Um, 
I yeah. Guess so this is like 1984, maybe. Yeah, he was running for president, and that booted that got him out. Well, and, that and, didn't get him out. What got him out was when he plagiarized a speech that Neil Kinnock gave, and like that happened on the on the you know like right in the aftermath of that video coming out, and then it was like it was then it was too much. But the video itself hurt him, but it didn't kill him. And it was like on top of that. He goes and he plagiarizes a speech from Neil Kinnock, word for word, like five solid minutes. You know, he just didn't use the accent. It was like, okay, now nah, he's right. But the thing of it is, is that it didn't, it should have finished him in Delaware, right? He should have been history at that point, And like, he should have been a national embarrassment. It's so funny the way he's got these people like want to, and I don't have any brief for George Santos. But I, I'm like, I'm, I find it hilarious that these guys will not shut up about how horrible George Santos is. And it's like, if George Santos was a Democrat, he'd be unremarkable. Like, right. totally unremarkable. Nobody would be like, yeah, okay, well, they're all like that. The fact that this guy has an R next to his name make, makes it a national scandal. And it's like, you have Fetterman. Don't come to me with Santos. You have Biden. Well, George you Santos have AOC, AOC from New York, oh, uh, young uh, House member. And what is she doing? She broke every ethics rule purposefully yeah. because she wanted but to go to the Met Gala so there's badly. A, there's a term for this. It's soliciting a bribe. Right. That's what she did. Right. She went to Anna Wintour and shook her down for a bribe. Of right. market value, probably six figures for these two tickets to the Met Gala, so she could wear this stupid commie dress and stiff right. all of the hair and makeup and shoes and clothes right. and stiff them all until they all went and said, Well, we're going to go public if we don't get paid. And then they got paid. And then she blames it on a staffer. I got a, a piece up at right. the American Spectator this morning about this. She's a crook. Right. She's a crook and a liar. And she wants to talk about socialism, but her definition of socialism is free stuff for AOC. Right. That's her that's her definition of it. But that's okay? the definition of most people who are socialists, though, Scott. I mean, me first, Absolutely. more than it's my favorite. Garbage ideology for garbage people. Yes, exactly. So she's a perfect representative of the is she what millennial of the millennial mindset of late, yeah, late millennial yeah sitting there going oh i love socialism because I, I remember having a conversation with some of the people in um do you remember uh occupy wall street back in the day and they had camp they had camps and all of these you know rich kids from the uh new york burbs came into town and and there was rape in the tents. And, you know, remember when Andrew Breitbart was saying, stop raping people, you know, because they were had a huge, terrible problem with rape in the, and and that no one wanted to report it because these, you know, encampments were, you know, communists, like, you know, little hellscapes. But I said, I think that all the, cause they, there were iPads around there and one guy got super pissed off cause another guy tried to steal his iPad. And I was like, this is just simple redistribution. Yeah, Why absolutely. are you getting upset? Yeah, like, <laughs> you will own nothing and you'll be happy. Right. Why aren't you happy? 
why aren't you happy? You're being raped and your iPad's being right. stolen. Isn't this like, the I dream? Mean, you know, you don't own your iPad or your vagina, and this is communism. <laughs> like, I don't know, like, I, you know, well, what's the right. deal? It's like, you know, my body, my choice. Well, you chose to be there and you knew what was going to happen. <laughs> I mean, you know, like the, the problem is that yeah, there are consequences to things that you do. Right. And that that's the real thing that these people want, you know, uh, uh, redistribution away from is the consequences. Right. And, you know, and and you see it over and over and over again. Right. You know, the biggest problem, <laughs> um, the biggest problem that you have is like all of the people who are like the socialist communists in America. They all think they get to be part of the ruling class right. when the revolution comes. What they don't realize is they're the ones that are going to get stood up next to the ditch and shot into it. Because it's always the, you know, um, privileged kind of intellectualoid lefties that, you know, support the revolution, but they have questions super right? mouthy always mouthy yeah. well Big the ideas. chinese have a word for them the word is baiswo right which means baiswo. stupid white leftists no um, seriously yes b-a-i-z-u-o baiswo it's a chinese B word and it basically means like stupid guilty white leftists the you the useful idiots is basically what right. they call them and you know, but like those are the first like the, when the Bolsheviks took over, uh, you know, the, the and formed the Soviet Union. All of the left wing intellectuals were the ones they shot and threw in a ditch. And you know why? Because to true communists, like the people who take power under the communist banner, those people are every bit as much of a pain in the ass as they are to, you know, freedom, freedom loving capitalists. Right. right? Right. They're no good for anyone. And some of them may have a little bit of will to power of their own that they end up in the in the Politburo or the nomenclatura or whatever. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, you're a loser no matter what system you're in. And this right. is the thing that these guys absolutely cannot abide because they all know it about themselves. They don't right. have any market skills. They don't have any, you know, they don't have enough character or courage or intelligence to actually emerge at the top of anything. Most of them come from money and that's all they have going for. Right. Um, but, you know, they're, they're not happy because they have no achievement in life. And without achievement, you can't have self-esteem. And without self-esteem, how are you going to make anything of yourself? Right. Like, if you don't believe in yourself, then you're not going to accomplish anything. Well, these are the people who smoke dope all day. And then, you know, right. they want to project their inadequacies onto the society as a whole. And so they're constantly looking for terrible things that other people have done to make their lives bad. And it's like, you know, your life would be okay if you actually did something with it. But they right. don't. They go major in some you know, grievance studies program on their parents' dime. They get out of school and they're not qualified for a job. And somehow that makes them a victim. Well, you know, so like, so these people doing this. So, you know, the this brings me to Biden's bailout program for that, the, you know, is being argued before the Supreme right. Court. Which so is likely I, to go away come October. Which is, well, yes. Or later However, this spring, rather. 
However, I I read this Washington Post article, I think, and it was talking about how Biden's already getting around all of this. So there's existing programs. So get this. There's existing programs that, that will pay off. If you can prove that the school defrauded you, you can apply for debt reduction. I'm all for that, by the way. I think that's terrific. I think these colleges ought to absolutely um, suffer the consequences of, of putting these people through these useless degree programs. Um, and I think I think it would be a fantastic thing if um, if uh, if you know Biden made use of that to give these kids relief. I think it'd be great so long as the colleges have to pay for it. Well, the thing is, in some of these cases, the colleges were out of business. And so, so like the example that I read, this woman went to an art school, racked up, didn't finish and didn't get a degree, by the way, racked up $70,000 of student debt. For art school. school. For art school. The school <laughs> went out of business and she just got an email last week or the week before from the federal government saying that her loans were paid off. And I'm like, screw these people. Right. You should never have been in school to begin with. You're dumb. She's like working at a, as a waitress or something at a coffee shop. She is AOC who got yeah. her degree from Boston, racked up this debt. And then is a bartender because she's stupid. Yeah. And so she wants you and me and everybody else who paid off our loans to pay for her. And I'm like, no, it, there should be a penalty for being that dumb. And also there should be a disincentive for doing it in the first place. I just, it's just infuriating. And you well, multiplied this again, uh, you know, by thousands of people with worthless degrees going to worthless schools and it's the taxpayers who get worked over the people who didn't go to college and the people who paid off their loans paying for all of these dummies see i'm somewhat hopeful about this because i think this whole system is going to collapse um and what we're going to end up with is First of all, this kind of credentialism that that, yeah. that has generated the the fuel for this all the you know all this time. Oh, you've got to have a college degree, or else you know you're not. Mm -hmm. That's all melting away because employers are really, I mean, they've hired enough college graduates who are utterly worthless that yeah. they're starting to realize that this is not some sort of magic ticket. Like, you know, make sure you get somebody with a degree because that proves that you know they're capable and they're smart. And, mm -hmm. it, doesn't really prove that. Um, so, you know, like you're, you're beginning to see that bleed out and you're also beginning to see attendance at these colleges start to bleed out as well. well um, part of that's just demographic that there aren't as many kids. There aren't as generation. many kids. That's, mm -hmm. but also, I mean, particularly white middle-class males, they go get like, go, you know, pick up a trade real fast. Mm -hmm. You know, go to Votech school or whatever. And I mean, you're starting to see real serious numbers mo migrating into technical education rather than for your colleges. 
especially since you can go back and get a degree later. I mean, it's not, you know, it's, I mean, especially now that so much of this is online and all the, it's, it's a lot easier to just go get a college degree while you're working a trade. Mm -hmm. um, and so like a great number of the Gen Z kids, that's what they're doing, um, which is like gutting a lot of these four-year colleges. And, you know, I mean, the thing of it is, is this whole system is built on very high overhead, right? So there aren't the margins for, uh, you know, dropping off 10% of, of your incoming freshman class uh, with the, you know, the, 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 the revenue that goes with that going away. Mm -hmm. And so you're like, you're beginning to see a lot of these colleges go bankrupt. And that's a good thing because the market needs to kill a bunch of them. Now, what would be fabulous is if Republicans in state legislatures and in Congress would start to let the air out of this balloon as well right. by simply getting the federal government out of the student loan business. Because if it was up to the banks and if the student loans were dischargeable in bankruptcy, which mm -hmm. they desperately need to be, um, you know, there would be underwriting. Right. Okay, you want a student loan. Now, what are you going to major again? Uh, engineering? Medicine? Law? Oh, not that. What do you major? Oh, women's studies. What are you going to do with that? Well, I want to be, you know, the HR director at some corporate thing. And mm -hmm. maybe that actually works. Mm -hmm. But if you go the first year and you're making C's because all you want to do is smoke weed and like, you know. Dye your to, hair purple. Dye your hair purple and whatever. And they go. Mm -hmm. Kind of don't think we're gonna extend the loan for next year. Yeah, like we're gonna. That's bad paper, and we're just gonna eat it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, right. like all of a sudden, when there's underwriting involved in this stuff, okay, um, it you don't just automatically get a student loan, right? I mean, you have to like you're gonna have to major in something that makes us believe you're gonna pay it back, which right. really is the way this thing always should have been, right? I mean, I, it, the whole thing is stupid that everybody can just automatically get money to go to college and nobody's going to like shepherd this and say, hey, by the way, you know, okay. you're doing this to make sure that you have earning potential when you graduate. And if you're majoring in something that's not going to improve your earning potential, you're wasting your time and our money, right? Like nobody's ever said that because we've had this ethic ever since World War II that well, we would need as many people to go to college as possible. Well, another um, thing that is shifting is that a lot of parents are like, I'm not sending my kid to an Ivy to, Ivy to be brainwashed. So they're yeah, being the more thing. particular about where they send their kids. So like Hillsdale and some of these other schools like that have been overwhelmed with applicants because parents are like if sure. i'm spending this much a year you are not going to be have your brain and not to mention the schools are you know dumbing things down like for example uh and I it's, talk it's to, open admissions in so many of these places if you're in the right racial group well not just that they're getting rid of testing like yeah. uh columbia just got rid of all testing permanently the interesting thing is, is that to get in, so like uh, University of Texas, where my son is going to be going, he um, 
they got rid of it for two years, you know, to the COVID thing because, you know, the kids or whatever. Now he would have been fine either way. But the thing is, is that a lot of kids wouldn't. And they're bringing the testing back for, you know, next year admission. So you're now we're in a situation where some of the Ivies are going to have fewer standards than the public schools to get well, into. Well, and they already do, but they will, but the getting rid of the testing gives them a lot more leeway to do nefarious things. Well, because... it's, I mean, it's a matter of time before it will be way harder to get into the University of Texas at Austin than Columbia. Well, it already like, is. Way harder. It's, it's all, I think it probably already is. Yes. I know it's like way harder to get in the University of Florida than it is mm -hmm. to get into Columbia or really any of the other Ivy League schools other than maybe Harvard, Princeton, and Yale. You have a low, there is a lower acceptance rate at University of Texas for those who are outside of Texas than there is at Harvard. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, already. And so what that has done is made the quality of the students there just well, it's off the chart off the charts yeah. and and so like it the balance of power and i don't know if you noticed but uh this last week um governor abbott's in two weeks ago sent a letter to all the texas schools and now they're all saying that they're not doing any dei stuff because yeah. he's like get rid of it or you're going to be sued and this is going to be a mess. Well, we'll well and, and I mean, part of that is they did this study at Texas A&M, and I'm sure you probably saw this, um, of attitudes of students at Texas A&M. And, you know, this is going back like 15 years or whatever. Um, you know, and it's kind of like, you know, how proud are you to be an Aggie, right? Right. Right. And I mean, you know, they, they surveyed whites, they surveyed Hispanics, they surveyed blacks. And 15 years ago, like everybody was like 90% plus that they were, you know, super proud to be an Aggie. That's all the way down to 55% for black kids. It's down to like 72% for Hispanics. And it's like holding up at the, in the 80 percentile level in uh, among the white kids, but it's like dropped off. And it was because they tried to make the school more inclusive. And so basically what this did was, I mean, you just, you opened Pandora's box mm -hmm. among all the black kids because you basically taught them that, I mean, you know, what, what used to be taught at Texas A&M is that black kids like, hey, you're at Texas A&M. This is an absolute, I mean, you know, every, people who aren't at A&M think the place is kind of weird, but if you're at A&M, it means you like it. And so it's like, this is the greatest place ever. Right? right. Like we're, you know, we're all Aggies and this is like a big deal and it doesn't matter what race you are and blah, 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 blah. And right. so the black kids are like, man, no, this is phenomenal. I'm at Texas A&M. I'm with everybody else and we're all Aggies and blah, blah, blah. And then they started bringing in all the DEI stuff. Mm -hmm. And now you don't think of yourself as an Aggie. You think of yourself as a black kid who's been screwed over by the system. And oh, by the way, I'm at Texas A&M, which screws me just like everywhere else. And well, like 15 uh, years ago, that's not how people thought about it. No, I was at A&M's graduation during the pandemic because my daughter graduated. And so we're sitting outside in this stadium and the president at the time, whose name doesn't need to be mentioned because he was booted shortly after, gave this talk that was so cringe and racially focused. I thought the parents many of whom were Aggie graduates themselves were going to start throwing things. The mood 
in that stadium was so hostile. And this is Texas A&M where it, everybody is it's about as conservative a friendly university as you can get like i mean they're like everyone you see howdy you know like and that and they're not being ironic about it they are genuinely kind and friendly people mm-hmm. my daughter went there for five years because she did undergrad and graduate school there i never felt that she was unsafe the education was stellar like stellar i can't, can't even speak highly enough about the classes and the professors she had and this, oh my goodness, like the, it was just rage. And, and people were like, this has got to stop. This has got to stop like right now and yesterday. But the thing is, is that their application process did all this DEI stuff and um, people, and it's whether they are conscious of it or not. And I think in the humanities, they were absolutely conscious of it. The purpose is to politically, to filter out anyone who's conservative politically so that only liberals can teach. And this is at Texas A&M, this is happening. Yeah, They brought in this diversity person to my daughter's grad class uh, talking about like implicit bias and everything. Oh. So there were two classes that he talked to. And in the one class, they started asking him questions and walked him right into a buzzsaw. They were all, they were so far ahead of the professor. They made him look like an idiot in the other class that this guy talked to. And this was on the more humanities nonprofit side. They got up and walked out in protest. The students did well, if you want to tick off. And the thing is the black students in this class, it was a white guy who was teaching this class were furious too. They're like, what the heck is this guy? know?" And talking about everybody was mad. This has got to stop it's pure division and it's and it's destructive so well but the thing that is is this it's not going to stop and i'm i'm on this kick and i'm like begging people to like recognize this none of this stuff stops until there are consequences to the people who are spreading it not just you know oh i'm sorry but you're wrong like that's not enough it needs to be, no, you're wrong. And here are the consequences for you being wrong um, that are very negative to you. We're right. going to destroy your career. Mm-hmm. We're going to destroy you socially because, you know, you're the guy who yells fire in a crowded theater. And well, if you're racist, this is theater, racist. Well, right. But I mean, it's inherently you know, you, racist. Well, you got white people who are pushing this, like the Robin D'Angelo's of the world. Right, right. Pushing all this anti-racist stuff, which is basically nothing but pro-racist, pro right. just, you know, against against white people. And she's white. And she's, oh, yeah, I did. Okay. This whole thing is a grift for her. All right. And at some point, her 15 minutes of fame are going to be over or whatever. And she's going to walk away with all that money. All right. There has to be consequences for this. There has to be, you know, social, economic, uh, professional consequences that Robin DiAngelo has to wait tables when she's 60 years old to make a living. The thing right? is, or Robin DiAngelo has to move away from America. The, like those are the that's not going to happen. Well, I know, it's but not. what I'm saying is, is that it's very, very difficult to make this stuff go away if you can't impose some negative um, um, effects 
on the purveyors of it. And our side is not willing to do those things, while the other side is trying earnestly to impose those consequences and negative effects on our people for doing things that were and are mainstream with respect to, to cultural advocacy or political advocacy or so forth. The, the attorney general in Washington is, is putting together a list of people who say things that he doesn't like and trying to equate that with domestic terrorism. Speech is domestic terrorism. Okay, like this is how far they're willing to go. And our side doesn't want to do anything other than maybe win an argument here or there and then apologize for that. Yeah. Well, that's not good enough. The other side is willing to go to the mattresses. And if you're not willing to do at least what Ron DeSantis is doing in Florida, then forget it. Okay, I mean, you can't save society unless you're willing to draw some, you know, political blood. Or cultural blood. I'm not talking about physical blood. Um, but like nobody's gonna do anything to these people that are that are trying to indoctrinate these kids at Texas AM or Columbia or where nobody's gonna do anything to them. They're not even gonna get fired. Okay. And until we're willing to do those things, you know, like you can't have the revival, you can't turn this fad into you know, a, a former fan. I actually um, think, I actually think, and this might be me being naive, but that there are a lot of liberal college professors who are realizing they're reaping the whirlwind. Oh, there's no question and, about that. And that they realize that this was a bad idea. And then you've got the couple people who are terrorists and enjoy terrorizing their coworkers and basically know that they can't say anything. If they say this, you know, if they point, you know, the scarlet letter goes on professor X, you know, they're going to be, uh, run out of town. And so there's a small group of students and activist professors everywhere, depending on this, you know, the system right. to a greater or lesser extent, who are terrorizing the rest of campus. The thing that I have a problem with is that for say, for example, the uh, black students who are at AM, you know, it's uh, granted a minority, you know, it's a, it's a country school. It's out in the middle of the country. It's a farm ag school. Right. And well, there's, a, there's a, a Prairie View A&M is just down the road and it's a, it's a, you know, a historically black, black college. School. Right. Yeah. So, 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 you know, you have these kids who, who have to be standout students to be at A&M, no matter their color, because it's so competitive to get in there. And, uh, it is absolutely degrading. I think all of this DEI stuff is degrading to those students who've earned their place. And so now they're told that they're being, you know, discriminated against when in fact they've won life's lottery. Yeah. And, and they have proven themselves to be people of excellence. This is ridiculous mm -hmm. to have this victim mindset put into these people who are young people of excellence, yeah. you know, so it's just so pernicious. And that itself, this, the DeAngelis of the world are racist, not just against white people, but against the black people they claim to be helping. Well, yeah. Well, if you want to, I mean, if you're going to try to teach black kids, that you know you can't get a fair shake in America. Um, 
then you know yeah i mean like that that is that is um uh it's destructive in in ways that are you know more sinister than i can even right. uh, describe and and one of the things that you know between the, the you know starting with mike brown and alton sterling and and the rest, you know, all the way up to George Floyd, that you keep hearing over and over and over and over again. This, you know, prominent, successful Black people when these, you know, these these events come up. And, and you know, and it's almost always, no, it's, well, yeah, it's almost always. I was about to say it is always, but not almost, mm-hmm. or not, not, not all the time, 94% of the time. <laughs> Um, yeah, we have enough of these real. enough of these publicized incidents that we probably could make a number like that um, probably but you know in every case just about you know these are career criminals who have destroyed their lives were destroyed long before what um you know ultimately happened to them you know, and it was a matter of time before they were going to get shot in a drive-by or shanked in jail or whatever. Like their lives were not going to end well, and it just so happens that these guys, you know, something happened in a in an encounter with the police. Like Alton Sterling is fighting with a cop on the concrete in front of a convenience store, and he reached for his gun, and the cop saw that and shot him. Right? Like what the what's the cop supposed to do? Okay. And and after this happened, and you know there was a big hue and cry, and this was here in Baton Rouge when this when was, and the the chancellor of Southern's law school, um, which you know Southern is a is a, a historically black school. The law school is more white kids than black kids, um, because Southern's the law school that's like really easy to get into, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's dirt cheap. And like you, you pay your real tuition at Southern is, is that you have to take the bar three times before you can pass because right. you didn't actually learn anything in law school. But anyway, you know, he's the chancellor of the law school. Everybody in Baton Rouge, I can't remember this guy's name, but everybody in Baton Rouge says he's a really nice, good guy, whatever. And, you know, he makes a lot of money and he's, he's you know, he's very erudite and all this kind of stuff. And he goes on, you know, the local TV station. Is, well, let's talk about Alton Sterling. And this guy says, I mean, I, I see what happened to him. And, you know, and I'm thinking there, but for the grace of God, go on. Mm. And I'm like, no, you're the right. you're the chancellor of the law school. You're right. not a career criminal. Right. <laughs> Reaching for a, gu- a, a, a cop's gun. He's got standing in front of a convenience store at two in the morning, right. ostensibly selling bootleg CDs. Okay, which is not right. what he was doing. He's the front for a drug dealer. And the way right. this works, in case you haven't watched enough cop shows, right, <laughs> is they got a guy in the front who's the shill, and you go right. see him and you buy his bootleg CDs at $25. Right. right. And then as soon as you do that, he texts somebody and then these two guys pull up in a, you know, 1984 Oldsmobile Cutlass <laughs> and somebody drops you like a, a dime bag of crack and you Which get- Which is a great car, by the way. Right. Just and you get Alton Sterling's bootleg rap CD with, you know, Run DMC and Rob Bass on it. And you get a <laughs> couple rocks crack. And that's what you did at two o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday night, right? Like this is what this guy was doing. So he, in other words, you're talking about a drug dealer who, I mean, and this guy's criminal record was everything from breaking and, in, uh, and entering to child molestation, 
the oh. forcible rape. I mean, shouldn't have even been on the streets. Okay. Right. And you know, and he's like, oh, but there, but for the grace of God, go I. And I'm right. like, give yourself some credit. You don't <laughs> live this guy's life. And nobody would, first of all, you're not going to be there at two in the morning. It's like, well, yeah, but I could get pulled over. Okay. Were you speeding? They may give you a ticket. Right. Right? Like, right. well, that's like you give a guy Martin. your ID and he says, you know why I stopped you? And you say, well, you know, I might have been five miles an hour over the speed limit. Right. And you know what? It's not racism if he writes you up for a ticket. It means right. he had a quota to fill that day and you got caught on the wrong side of that. Right. That happens to white people. It happens to Pakistanis. It happens to Mexicans. It happens to blacks. So what? But there is this like, and I know that this guy didn't actually believe that. But he felt this is the really pernicious thing. He felt like he had to say it, right? It was, well, you know, I can't just say right. it's impossible for anybody, unless you're, you know, a conservative black guy or a Republican, it's impossible for anybody in the black community to come out and say, we can't live our lives like George Floyd. We can't live our lives like Alton Sterling. You have to be better than that. If you live your life that way, negative things will happen and it will not end well. And that is a message that especially these, you know, these kids on the streets of the inner city that are, have no positive role models never get told that message. And you know what the sick thing about it is? The Democrats who run those cities those kids live in absolutely refuse refuse to say anything of the sort because they don't want those kids to be upwardly mobile. They don't want those kids to get ahead because if they get ahead, if they move from the uh, from the, the lower class into the working class or the middle class, they may challenge some of the assumptions of the cities that they live in and the governing class in those cities. And they may say, you know, what you're doing doesn't work. And boy, they can't afford that. And this is the Democrat Party, lock, stock, and barrel, period, is okay, keeping so what people do you... down by any means necessary. Okay, so yeah, that's a given. And yeah, but it needs to be said. We got to. Yeah, but the thing is, it. we can't be the ones saying it. We can say it, it's true but it doesn't have the same impact. So this has been an argument. So um, I've got some black friends who are pretty big activists on the right, um, but they have a real problem. They're like, why should we own the black problem? Do white people own the white problem? And here's my thing. I say, yes, and I'll tell you why. So here I am as a woman, I have to speak for women's rights so I, you know, I'm, I'm called the turf, you know, trans exclusionary, whatever. I'm not a feminist. What's, what's wrong with that? Like, even if you were a feminist, it's like, so, so fine. Well, I'm a, I mean, I'm a turf big deal. So, well, here's the thing about that. I think it's incumbent for me as a woman to speak up for women and yeah, why I sure. think the transgender problem is a problem and why I think suburban women and their wrong, stupid headedness need to wake up because they're killing the rights of their daughters by what they're doing. Yeah. I think it's incumbent on me to make those arguments. A man can make those arguments. Even a black man can make those arguments. And I welcome that. But if women are uh, ourselves, if we don't step up, we are harming our own case. 
So, so like to that end, I watched, uh, uh, Chris rock special. I don't know if you've seen it yet. Uh, it was actually my plan to do that tonight. Well, I don't want to give too many spoilers away. Yeah, don't. When there's one bit that he does where he's talking about how his, he said he didn't want his daughters to know the hood. Like he knew the hood. He didn't want his daughters to know the hood. So they went to the best schools and they went on a school trip and they got bored one night and his one daughter went out and partied with friends or whatever and they got nailed. And so all of the parents of these rotten children were got together and got lawyers to sue the school. And Chris Rock didn't want to sue the school. He thought that these kids should live with the consequences of their actions, whether it be they get kicked out or they get suspended for an extended period of time or whatever. And, um, but his ex-wife and all these other parents were like, we, you know, the kids need to get back in school block. So he on the DL went to the Dean of the students and said, I need you to kick my daughter out. He was incensed because his daughter and the girlfriends who had all been screwing around on the school trip were laughing on the porch while they were suspended. And he, it just made him angry that they were just so spoiled rotten. So he's like, I need you to kick my daughter out of school and she needs to be the first one kicked out. (laughs) And so they did. So the Dean did it. His wife never found out. The attorneys never found out. They know now. (laughs) They know now, but they didn't know then. Mm -hmm. And he was talking about how on every application to the new school she went to, she had to write an essay why she wouldn't do that again. And when she went to college and she wrote an essay, why she wouldn't do what she did to get kicked out, she had to own the consequences of her actions. And she, he was talking about how he did not want a rotten adult. You know, basically he didn't want a rotten adult. And I was thinking, this is the, the way he parented this kind of solid parenting. He was talking about how proud he is of her now and what she's doing. Um, needs to be the way things are again and there needs to be these kind of standards for kids but it happens with the parents all the other parents got attorneys to protect their children from the consequences of their actions right and uh i think that we have you know this kind of spoiled rotten dystopia is this our generation's fault you know, I saw like well, I think uh, there's, I, a, there's a ton of Gen X um, um, complicity in uh, in in that being as bad as it is. I don't, I don't think there's any question about that. Well, I think it started with the boomers because they had children it did. Late too, and so like uh, it, it's just it's just a problem. So um, the the uh, you know cat turd cat turd on uh twitter uh i don't know if you see the best twitter account on twitter yeah so basically he was saying how and this was pre all the tech that we have how you know kids went out and played and he was listening to music and all of the things that we took for granted growing up and how Mm -hmm. things are changed now that we had freedom that our parents were working and you know told us to come home for dinner and that's about it Right. And so like there is kind of a 
the technology has changed, parenting has changed and, and values have changed. And I think it's this last part, you know, one of the things he doesn't mention is that most of us were dragged by the ear to church on the weekend. Um, you know, back in the seventies, you know, everybody might've been smoking pot on the, you know, uh, while they were sneaking out and doing stuff, but they were going to church on, on the weekend. And most people liberal or conservative had a shared set of values, you know, Mm -hmm. that they, they believed in. That's not the case anymore. And that's, that's a big change. And so this, this leads me to a topic that I think is probably the most important thing that we're talking about because it's the root causes of stuff. Naomi Wolf had a really interesting essay on her Substack, and with and for those who don't know who she is, she's like what a third wave feminist, um, in the order of Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan, and she's written the a, a multiple books on feminism and was, I don't know if you remember a spiritual advisor to Al Gore, you know, telling him how to be more alpha male or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I remember her. Yeah. So anyway, for, I'm, I know, I know, you know, but for the other people listening here, in case you didn't know, so she has been a pretty vocal person. She was radicalized by uh, the birth of her first child, basically was shocked and appalled at the medical system and how it mistreated women in it. And I don't need to get into that there, but she has a real point. Anyone who's been a woman and gone through the system has an idea of what she's talking about. So she wrote about it. And that is when she started with her medical skepticism because before that, she didn't really think about it. Well, through COVID, she has been a harsh critic of these experiments because that's what they are, the vaccines. Mm -hmm. And they're not really vaccines, the, the genetic treatment basically for COVID. And she's a huge skeptic of these uh, treatments, and she has been very vocal about the consequences of them. Mainly, the biggest thing she's concerned about is the fertility of women, because the um, uh, the big problem with miscarriages. Anyway, so she was also horrified. She's also been horrified culturally to see the societal breakdown to see people turn against their neighbor and be so indifferent to people losing their jobs, losing their lives, not being able to be at a funeral for their parent, not being able to hold and hug goodbye family members who are dying. Like, like just the callous horror of everything that's happened. Like I, Mm -hmm. you know, people are putting are kind of coming out of the closet, sharing what happened, you know, pictures of funerals where there's everybody separate and and people are being told to stay away from family members. You can't hug them uh, while, right. you know, comfort them. I mean, just insanity. Yeah, no, just, yeah. And so she has, she was, she was saying how she's a pretty secular Jew. She went to Jewish school as a kid and, and didn't really believe in like Satan and demons like Christians do in the same kind of way. And there's this uh, Messianic Jewish pastor, Pastor Khan, C-A-H-N, I think. And he's basically saying that with the West rejecting God and because the American founding in particular, the United States was essentially consecrated to God. And the original people who came were Christian 
And it was their promise to do their best as Christians in this country, whether, you know, even though there was lots of pluralism and people believed different things, the unifying thing was, was God. Right. And she said, because that's been abandoned, this professor or this pastor's um, thesis is that the ancient gods have returned. So the, you know, Moloch were sacrificing children and we're seeing all of this pedophilia and all of these type of things. And Astrith, the goddess of fertility and sex and how there's just been the absolute destruction of the modern family um, in, in um, pursuit of, you know, lust and, and licentiousness. And then uh, Baal, where, you know, this lust for power and, and how um, this kind of callous indifference and so we've been welcoming these demons basically back into our daily existence. And she went through all the imagery that's just everywhere, whether it be Sam Smith or Katy Perry, or I, I just went to a Muse concert and the very last image is a huge uh, monument to Baal. Uh, it's crazy. And- That's not good. I like Muse. I like Muse too. And it and they create this in this case, the enemy is this altar. And you see this you see this imagery throughout where it's the common man trying to fight this the this beast. Oh, okay. All right. So in other words, that's that they're not worshiping it. They're just they're acknowledging not its it. presence. Okay. They are, but at the yeah. end, the very the last image that you have is of this beast and the the sense that i got is that um because the lead singer of muse has always been a bit of a paranoid and uh and an i don't know if he's an anarchist libertarian tendencies to say the least and anti-government yeah. no he's definitely um, anti-government definitely and they've anti -government. got some great great anti-government songs that you have to actually read the lyrics before you'll get it Right. Um, but yeah. Okay. So I love Muse, but the but I think that uh, the lead singer feels like we've lost the battle because the last, the very last impression you have is of this big, huge horned beast and um, not of the common man triumphing. And I, I mean, that's so kind like, of a, um, uh, it's a little like, uh, whatever the, the rock opera that sticks did years, years and years ago with, you know, Mr. Roboto and. Oh and yeah. All Mr. That. Roboto. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess all of that to say, I don't think that Naomi Wolf is wrong. I don't think Muse is wrong in how they're perceiving things. I think that there has been, you know, you've talked about the a revival I think two things can be true at the same time. I do see a revival amongst a smaller, more, you know, more uh, aware uh, group of people. And then the general masses, I think, and a more of a majority have given up and given in to these, well, you know, in, you know, in the book of Timothy in the New Testament, it talked about various lusts. Right. Well, and here's the thing. Um, the war's not over until you stop fighting. So there's, you know, there, there's that, you know, if you want to kind of end this on a relatively hopeful note, um, you know, I mean, there is 
redemption out there. And, and you know, the the one thing that is true about all of this, that's, you know, like it's a bad thing, but it's also potentially a good thing is while people are giving themselves over to all of these different lusts, um, they're not happy. Right. Um, and people who are unhappy in their wickedness may very well turn away from it. So, um, you know, I think, I mean, it's, I'm mixing metaphors here a little bit, but you know, the, the old saying is the best revenge is living well. Mm -hmm. Um, and so for the people who, um, want to carry on the best traditions of Western civilization, um, you know, I, I think can be great ambassadors of the personal, you know, um, wealth of character and, um, you know, life experience of life lived well, uh, can be beacons to those people who are unsatisfied with lesser lifestyles and values. Mm. Um, you know, and I, I so much of this, and we talk about this in almost every podcast, but so much of this, uh, the you know, the, the battle isn't really in real life because you, I mean, you still see good folks everywhere you go. All right. Mm -hmm. The, the, I mean, the, the battle is on those screens, right? It's in pop culture, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and that, like, that's where the problems are now. Uh, as I understand it, Jesus Revolution just hit 30 million at the box office. Mm -hmm. Okay. So this is another, you know, totally shocking them. Totally yeah. shocked. I saw one the, the variety of, you know, here's like, okay, you know, when you promote positive values, this is what you get. Um, and so, you know, you can contrast that to, uh, and I, you know, and I, I haven't seen Jesus Revolution, but I have seen this, which, I'll admit that makes me part of the problem, maybe. Um, but the second season of Sex Life dropped on Netflix. I don't know what Sex Thursday. Life Thursday. Okay, so Sex Life is possibly the worst show uh, on television. Um, maybe the worst show ever on television. Really? Uh, it's absolutely horrendous horrendous show and it's basically it's about this woman she's a uh you know upper class housewife in connecticut her husband is a stock trader on wall street or whatever um and uh she runs across her old flame that is like a record producer in new york city and she runs across him and like you know rekindles an affair and she's got two kids and like the whole it's but this whole thing is presented as well it's what she needed right mm -hmm. um you know and and of course she destroys her life she absolutely destroys her husband's life um and it shouldn't have been given a second season but it was and of course the second season is every bit as morally vacant as the first season was the writing is terrible the plot is bad the only thing that redeeming about this thing for me is uh sarah shy who is the uh the the actress that plays the lead i think is just drop dead gorgeous and i will actually just i will sit there and gawk at her it's not that she's like like you know l mcpherson super hot she's kind of a girl next door 
but I just can't get enough of her. But the show is horrible. It's an absolutely horrible show. And her best friend is this, you know, academic and this author who writes all this stuff about how, um, like, she, you know, she has this book in the second season that comes out and it's called Unattached. And it's all about how women are better off without a family, right? Mm -hmm. um, and she doesn't even believe it because she's hung up on like her old college boyfriend who keeps coming back in her life and trying to get her to marry him. Um, you know, but like her agent is like, don't you do that. You're going to ruin your brand. Um, and it's, you know, they're trying to set up some sort of a moral, you know, conundrum and there is none, right? Like you have to be, if you're not an a-hole, there is no moral conundrum. You get married to the guy you love. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so the whole thing, I mean, like everything about the show is terrible and the reviews it's gotten are terrible. Um, if you look at Netflix rankings, it, this show is not doing all that well at all. In fact, you know, the, the show that's done really well of late on Netflix is Outer Banks, which just came out with a new season. And it's a, you know, an adventure show about, about a bunch of high school kids who find like, you know, this massive treasure, um, you know, and so a lot of some traditional values are presented in Outer Banks, right? Like they're, you know, it's a, it's a little kind of, you know, freedom and independence, but it's also, you know, hard work and, and ingenuity and all of those kinds of things that, that, that are part of this. Um, and that has taken off and everybody wants to watch it. Nobody really wants to watch sex life. So like, I keep seeing examples of the market trying to tell Hollywood what it wants and what it wants is things that conservatives would, would approve of. Um, and yet Hollywood's just not listening. So the real question is, is, okay, what is the institution that's going to come along and blow Hollywood out of the water? And it's, you know, it's people making, you know, the Angel Studios folks and the people doing Jesus Revolution and all of that kind of stuff. That's going to, that's going to, to up, up in the apple cart. It's just a matter of time. Well, on that positive note, um, thank you all for listening. And uh, I hope that you uh, go and see the the movie it's done by kelsey grammar i think produces yeah. it and he's in mm -hmm. it too right and uh so i like seeing some bigger hollywood stars finally putting their muscle between some behind some of these projects where they might have been afraid before because they would uh not be uh acceptable to the mainstream hollywood that's also seeming to be shifting i hope that that's true well, as cancel culture keeps eating some of these people, they got nothing to lose. Right. And so, which is actually a good thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So with that, um, what was the name of the movie again? Je Jesus Revolution. Jesus Revolution. Yeah. And it's the same lead, lead who is also in The Chosen, the, the guy who plays Jesus. So mm -hmm. uh, um, something Rumi. John Jonathan Rumi. Jonathan Rumi. Okay. Yeah. You can see I'm... Too many things competing up here in the head. This is, um, can you tell that I have kids and I'm running 15 different directions? <laughs> anyway, so thank you for listening today. And we hope that you'll like and share this with as many people as possible. This is the spectacle. And I, like I said last week, please uh, go and early, uh, and maybe you can explain this to everybody, Scout. 
why, why does early orders, why do early orders help authors? Um, well, uh, if you get a lot of them, then it kind of gives Amazon a signal that the book is going to be in demand and Amazon may actually help to promote it a little bit. Okay. Yeah. So go and look up Aramit Terrell Jr.'s book, um, How Do We Get Out of Here? And it's going to be great. I've I've read it. You can pre-order it at Barnes and Noble and at Amazon. We'll have it on the website soon. And I really suggest that you do that, help them out. And of course, when, you know, get Scott's book, The Revivalist Manifesto and his new book on Obama will be coming out soon. You can order that too. So thank you all for listening and we'll see you next week. See you guys.